much shock can you take? To complete a double night of horror, a monstrous nightmare of terror turned loose in a fight to the death. It could only be shown at midnight. this song on the podcast before i'm going to play it again the song is called calling dr gang green it's from the gino royd experience on their album themes from an imaginary spook show you can find it on amazon and other online retailers i'm sure i'm playing it because dr gang green is joining us this week on the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear i am your host writer producer Derek m cook welcome to the show i'm excited to have you here because i'm excited to talk with you about The Monster Club from 1981, a movie that Larry himself has been, <laughs> I'd say, torturing me with for, I'm going to say, years at this point. If you haven't seen the trailer for The Monster Club, I'm not talking about the movie. The trailer itself is filled with music that's going to get stuck in your ear. As Larry and I will say in the conversation that we're going to have here in a moment, one of the monsters in the Monster Club is apparently an earworm because these songs, they just find a way to keep playing in your head over and over and over and over and over and over. I'm going to stop. Anyway, it keeps going and going and going. So yeah, uh, that, that's coming up. I'm hoping that by the time the episode's over, I've managed to purge the song from my brain. Okay, actually, I know that's not going to happen. And you know what? It doesn't matter. The music is fun. And we're going to focus on the music in our conversation about this film. We're going to talk about the film itself overall as well. But Larry's interest in one of his areas of expertise is the realm of rock and roll and musical horror. This movie's got some really cool songs. We're going to learn about them and learn about the film as well in this episode of the podcast. Of course, that's not all we're doing this week. We have some feedback as well. And why don't we get into some of that right now? Good afternoon, Derek and old Monster Kid radio listeners. My name is Pete Quince. I'm calling from G-Fest. Derek uh, left a message on Facebook and said, Hey, anybody's down there, why don't you give me a call? So I am calling. Just got out of uh, a very busy vendor's room, and I'm headed over to see Steve Riefel and Ed Gojikowski talk about Ishiro Honda. Wish you could be here, Derek, and wish all of Monster Kid radio listeners could be here. This is a blast. I highly recommend it. Hope to see you here next year. Have a great day. That's awesome. G-Fest just happened this past weekend, and it's one of those conventions that's been on my bucket list. I'll eventually get to it, I'm sure. It happens in the Chicago area once a year. All things Kaiju, Godzilla, Gamera, Ultraman, all that stuff, all in one spot. It's a bigger con than Monster Bash, I'm told. And there's just a lot more focus on all things giant Japanese monster. You don't get much of that, if at all, at Monster Bash. So I'm guessing it's a completely different kind of vibe. I would love to get to G-Vest someday. Someday. 
I will. I hear it's amazing. And Kyle Yount from the Kaiju Cast makes it a regular thing. He goes every year. He's a panelist. He's been involved in programming there. He's shown his movie, the documentary Hail to the King, 60 Years of Destruction, which, by the way, if you haven't seen, highly recommended. It's on YouTube. Just do a search for Hail to the King. You'll find it. It's all about the Kaiju phenomenon in Japan. It's, it's fascinating. Anyway, I bring it up because Kyle actually was honored at this year's G-Fest and, man, long deserved. One of the things that G-Fest does is they have a Hall of Fame and they induct people into the Hall of Fame every year for doing amazing things in the field of kaiju fandom, in, in supporting and promoting the fandom of, of all things Giant Monster. And Kyle was inducted into the Hall of Fame at G-Fest this year. And that's amazing. An honor well-deserved. I've said it a couple of times on Facebook. I want to say it here on the show. Congratulations, Kyle. You deserve it, brother. Pete, I want to thank you for calling in and letting us know how G-Fest was. I know there were a handful of other Monster Kid Radio regulars at G-Fest. Steve Sullivan was one of them. He went on Friday and he told me a little bit about what it was like compared to Monster Bash because he did that as well. Well, he actually called in with some feedback for the show, so why don't we play his voicemail now? Hey, Derek. Steve Sullivan here. Looking forward to joining you on the show again soon. Calling in about the Invisible Ghost, which... It turns out I either hadn't seen or hadn't seen in a really long time. I didn't remember any of it while I was watching it, and it was pretty good. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed Lugosi especially. He was pretty fabulous. And Clarence Muse was really good as the butler character, and an interesting way they portrayed him, too. I thought you guys were a little hard on Mantan Moreland, though. Mantan was a comedian, not just a bit player or an actor, and he was a really, really funny one. His stuff is not modern for the most part now, not up to the same kind of modern standards we hold, but I, I don't think it's fair to put him in the same category as, say, Stephen Fedget, whose whole thing was the lazy black man thing. Bantan was funny. He was often the most sensible member of the cast, the only one that was walking away from danger rather than toward it and was usually a really interesting character in the story. It's important to note, again, that he that he was a comedian, and he was really good at it, and he had some classic bits that he did, including the incomplete sentences bit that he did with his partner, who's uh, slipping my, my uh, Ben Carter. Almost slipped my mind. But I think it's important to know that, that the standards were different then, and I don't think it's fair to judge him by that, and I think... Of all those type of characters, he was easily the most funny and is usually the best thing in a lot of films he's in. So, that's it for now. Take care. Steve Sullivan, signing off. We covered Invisible Ghosts here on the show a couple weeks back in episode 326 with guest Troy Howarth. And I want to be clear, I, I hope I didn't come down too hard on Manted Moreland myself. I'm actually a fan. I think the biggest issue, though, that I have with Manton Moreland's film roles is that he's done a handful of them, and through no fault of his own, they're typically written and or directed the same way. And that has to do with the time not giving a lot of character breadth and depth to the African-American in the cast. And, and I get it. It is what it is. It's how Hollywood was, and... 
that's that. I personally really dig Manton Moreland. And like you said, he's a comic, he's a comedian, he had a long career, made a lot of money for a person in his position, and he was actually up for uh, replacing one of the Stooges. Uh, at one point, he was going to be one of the three Stooges. So, you know, something to be said there. Steve, thanks for calling in. I appreciate it. And I, I'm glad you liked Invisible Ghost, man. Lugosi is solid in anything that I see him in. I mean, I'm such a fan of, of Bela. So to talk about Invisible Ghost with somebody who's also a fan of Bela, Troy, it was fantastic. And Steve, I'm looking forward to having you back on the show. In fact, as of this recording, he and I are scheduled to get together online in a couple of days to record a session for Monster Kid Radio in which we announce the winners of the 2016 Monster Rally Retro Awards in which we honor the best genre films of 1932, 42, and 52. It's going to be a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to that, Steve. Thanks for calling in. Listeners, if you want to call in like Pete or Steve, you can always call and leave me a voicemail at 503-479-5657. That's 503-4795-MKR. That is a Google voicemail line, which means it's got a hard three-minute limit. So if you have more than three minutes worth of stuff to share, you can always call a second time and I'll I'll edit everything together. I did get one other voicemail. However, it came in garbled. I don't know what happened there. It just, it didn't sound good. I can barely hear a voice. It starts by saying, hey, Derek, it runs about a minute long. It came in from the area code 631. So if you tried calling and leaving a voicemail from that area code, it didn't work. So maybe try calling in again. Sorry. Anyway, let's go ahead and get to the conversation with Larry Underwood, a.k.a. Dr. Gayden Green, a.k.a. the biggest fan of the 1981 film, The Monster Club, that I know. And that's going to happen right after this. It all began with a curse. The evil you did this day will be avenged. A curse of the dead hand. The hand that crawls, creeps, and kills. And now the screaming starts. Starring Peter Cushing from Cinerama Releasing in color. Rated R, under 17, not admitted without parent. They were young, irresponsible, and they were just looking for kicks. You look bored. You guessed right. I am bored. I just wish something would happen. She could not know how soon she was to regret those words. How they would all wish it had never happened. Terribly noisy, these ghosts. <laughs> that does it. I'm off. There's nothing to be scared of, Sylvia. The house belonged to one family for about 200 years. They were obviously a strange bunch. One night, one of them went mad, hacked all the others to pieces and then killed himself. And they haunt this house? No, they don't. The killer is supposed to be the ghost. They thought it would be fun to be frightened, but their fear turned to terror as the hand of death stabbed in the haunted house of horror. How would you like to be thought of as a suspected psychopath and be treated like one? Because that's what one of us must be. Now, can any one of you prove that you didn't kill Gary? We're not insane. How do you know? Frankie Avalon, Jill Hayward, Dennis Price, Mark Winter. A daring ghost hunt becomes a deadly murder hunt in the haunted house of horror. Now they can trust no one. 
not even each other. Why do you have to lie to me? Just leave me alone. Maybe you've been baiting me. Maybe you've been saying the same things about me behind my back that you've been saying about Richard. Is that it? Go away, Lydia. Let me like the night of the murder. You know, Sheila shouldn't be wandering around this house by herself. She likes to be frightened. You know, I've always been afraid of the dark. If you were so frightened of the dark, why the hell did you come and play here when you were a kid? This is Jeff Owens from the Classic Horrors Club. And I'm Richard Chamberlain from kccinephile.com and monstermoviekid.wordpress.com. We'd like to invite you to attend the next monthly meeting of the Classic Horrors Club on the Phantom Podcast Network. We think you'll enjoy our show, but don't take our word for it. Let's ask some of our listeners what they think. Excuse me, sir. What did you say after listening to the Classic Horrors Club podcast? I'll never smile again. Wow, that's a little mean. How about you, sir? Would you recommend the Classic Horrors Club podcast? It would be very dangerous, not only for you, but for others. Well, we do talk about classic horror, from silent screen to Halloween and everything scary in between, but I don't think I'd call it dangerous. I think that's enough from our listeners. I've always said we have the, uh, best fans. Why don't you give us a try yourselves? We meet once a month during the Classic Horror Club podcast on the Phantom Podcast Network, found at downrightcreepy.com or at classichorrors.club. Oh, wait, here's one more listener walking his pet. What do you think of the Classic Horror Club podcast? There's the stink of hell on this train. Even the dog knows it. Every once in a while, there is a special kind of horror film that becomes a horror classic. In 1931, it was Frankenstein. In 1932, it was Dracula. In 1971, it was Rosemary's Baby. In 1973, it was The Exorcist. And this year, it is From Beyond the Grave. Secret worlds become public nightmares where children's play toys are the devil's weapons. A truly terrifying motion picture where death is just the beginning and the grave is not just a resting place. And pleasant rooms become evil tombs. From beyond the grave, the horror picture you will remember all your life. We haven't done a Monster Kid Radio crash in forever, it feels like. So uh, when the opportunity to do one presents itself, I've got to jump on it. The OMSI Museum here in town is the Oregon Museum of Science and Industry here in Portland, Oregon. Every year runs their sci-fi film fest. A couple of years ago, that's how I first saw the original Planet of the Apes. It was on the big screen. The screen is nearly four stories high. It's awesome. Well, this year... They're bringing in a nice selection of movies, and one of them is right up Monster Kid Radio's alley. July 29th, 2017, it's a Saturday, 5.45 p.m. at the Empirical Theater at OMSI. They are showing the original, The War of the Worlds. This could be the beginning of the end for the human race. 
For what men first thought were meteors or the often ridiculed flying saucers are in reality the flaming vanguard of the invasion from Mars. Looks like they're going to come out of that gully pretty soon. We'll have to rush our defenses to be ready when they do. Guy can need plenty of reinforcements. We'll get them. Lieutenant! Look! They slash across country like scythes, wiping out everything that's trying to get away from them. That explains why communication is cut the moment their machines begin moving. Montreal's blacked out. Nothing more has come through. Same thing that happened on the Pacific Coast. Anything from them yet? No, Mr. Secretary. We've had nothing from San Francisco for over five hours. The nations of the world mobilize their armed might, rushing to defend the Earth against the unknown weapons of the super race from the Red Planet. Is there nothing that can stop the Martian death machines? Guns, tanks, bombs. They're like toys against them. We know now that we can't beat their machines. Got to beat them. All over the world, human beings cower before the onslaught of these unearthly enemies, whom no one has ever seen. <coughs> Panic that sweeps around the globe as the great masses of mankind flee blindly in a headlong stampede of hysteria. <coughs> Monster Kid Radio is going to crash the Omsi Movie Theater on July 29th for the 545 screening. I'd recommend going online and buying your tickets now if you're going to attend. I don't know how soon they're going to sell out, if they're going to sell out, that sort of thing. I can't imagine people are going to skip the opportunity to see the War of the Worlds on the big screen. But then I do kind of live in my own little Monster Kid bubble. So anyway, bottom line is... I want to see you there. I have a Facebook event page set up. So if you're on Facebook, look up Monster Kid Radio Crashes, the War of the Worlds, and let us know you're going to be there because I would love to meet you. If you aren't a Facebook user, well, that's okay. I'd still love to see you there. Head over to omzi.edu and follow the link through their website to get to the movie theater, to get to the sci-fi film fest. Of course, I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes as well. So you can go online and buy your tickets. I'm looking forward to seeing you there and I'm going to bring my recorder. So we'll chat a little bit for a future episode of Monster Kid Radio. I can't wait to crash the War of the Worlds. It's going to be fun. This is Count Vlad, but you may recognize me by my more familiar name, Count Dracula, and I'm here to offer you a friendly warning. Derek and his guests often get excited, and occasionally this results in revealing key plot points of the movies they're discussing. In your parlance, you might call these revelations spoilers. You know how the children of the night Ah, I mean monster kids can get sometimes. So consider yourself warned, and don't come begging to me to kill them for their transgressions afterward. I have more pressing issues to take care of, like that pesky Van Helsing. I will take you to a place where my friends foregather. There you will find stories of such blood-curdling terror it will make your toes curl and your hair reach up towards the sky. He likes to take you by surprise. He likes to leave a very special calling card. 
It was the best blood I have ever tasted. He's giving you a very special invitation. Three stories to shock you. Chill you. Thrill you. And make you laugh. <laughs> Everybody knows about garlic and steaks through the heart. Yes, we all have our cross to bear. I'm just a sucker, boy, yada! I'm just a sucker, boy, yada! I'm just a sucker, boy. You are one of his kind now. You have to be staked by your own men. Songs by B.A. Robertson. Don't you look down on me. Night. With the strange twist. The pretty things. The viewers. Tell me you're not going to let you go until you do. We must have our food. But remember, he likes to take you by surprise. You've been invited to the Monster Club. Come at your peril. Welcome to the Monster Club. Monsters rule, okay? Welcome to Monster Club Radio. I've got Larry on the phone, Larry Underwood. Hey, hey. And we're going to be talking about a movie that keeps coming up in conversations between Larry and I, and then he starts singing a song, mm-hmm. and the song gets stuck in my head, and I'm hoping that by finally talking about the 1981 film, The Monster Club, I'll be able to purge that song from my head, and it won't keep running, <laughs> but I, I don't think that's really going to happen. Well, there's more than one that's an earworm in this song. Oh, man, so. this, an earworm oh. is one of the monsters in The Monster Club. <laughs> <laughs> it should be. This is from 1981. I, I don't know if this is a first-time thing here on Monster Kid Radio or not, but Normally, we stick to the movies from the 30s to the 60s, toe dipping into the 70s. 81, the most recent movie we've talked about here on the show, maybe? Yeah. Maybe? Yeah, well, you know, 2017, it's not exactly classic, but it's old enough. I mean, it's it's got Vincent Price, so it, it, it works. Which is really one of the big selling points of this film, and I love him in this. But this is a movie that you really enjoy. I mean, it's something that you've been teasing me about, but it's not just that. I mean, you really dig this movie. I do. Well, it's got several of my favorite things in it. It's got Vincent Price. It's an, a horror anthology, which absolutely probably my favorite subgenre of movies. And and it's got rock and roll in it, which is another subgenre. Probably my second favorite subgenre is heavy metal and rock horror, you know, movies with uh, horror movies that that include bands and and music in it. So it's all of it rolled up into one. Yeah, it's an Amicus film. Uh, it's so not an Amicus film. It's not am- well. It's produced by the Amicus guy. It, it's Amicus ish. It's very Amicus ish, but it's technically Amicus had already broken up at this point. Had they? Yes, and this is a sword and sorcery production. That's which, right. I saw that. Yeah, um, Milton Sabotsky and Rosenberg, Max Rosenberg, had split up at this point, and. Subotsky had started doing his own stuff, and he formed his own production company called Sword and Sorcery. So this is one of the two films that they did. They did a movie called Dominique, known as Dominique is Dead in the States. And they did this, and they did the Martian Chronicles TV show. Oh, okay. That's too bad. I mean, the Sword and Sorcery Productions, that's just a cool name for a production company. So I wish I had done a lot more. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
so yeah, so that's this is actually, but it's very amicus ish, and it feels oh, yeah. just like one of the amicus anthologies. I mean, you've got Sabotsky involved, you got Roy Ward Baker directing, and he directed for Amicus, didn't he? Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I know him as the Hammer guy, but you know, he did Vault of Horror, and he did Asylum, and he also Ooh. did, and now the screaming starts. Okay. Yeah. Asylum's a good one. That is a good one. And then, of course, like I said, he did some Hammer stuff as well, including the Quatermass and the Pit film, uh, which is my co-host on Downplace's favorite Quatermass film. So, yeah, I'll give him a little bit of props there. A little bit of props there. Yeah. Did Scars of Dracula? Yeah. yeah. This was his last film, though, wasn't it? Yes, this was his his last film. You mentioned Vincent Price, and, I, I mean, I love Vincent Price. And, and to me... The best parts of this movie are the Vincent Price and the John Carradine segments. Totally agree. I love seeing old John Carradine when he seems to be in control of all of his faculties. And, and I don't mean to sound insulting or anything, but when you see him in something like House of Long Shadows, he, he seems like he's not really aware all the time. And I don't know if that's acting or it's just old age, but in this, I mean, he's dancing. It's great. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, House of Long Shadows was just two years later. Yeah. But I think he just had better parts in this and well, a little more together. But yeah, poor guy's hands, though. You see them oh, very man. clearly in this. The arthritis, they were completely twisted up. And mm-hmm. There's that one shot where he's like resting his face on his hand. He's holding his face with his palm and his fingers all. Yeah, it's, it's oh, really yeah, unfortunate. Little finger on one hand. It just absolutely goes 90 degrees off his, off his hand. Yeah. Uh, wasn't Zachary? Didn't he have that issue as well towards the end? Mm-hmm. Yeah, which, yeah, which happens. Not that bad. You know. Yeah, it is what it is. But he was working, and seeing the two of them together is great. They're old friends. They had done like at this point seven movies together. Oh, so they had done quite a bit, and, and I'm, I'm including that horror Hall of Fame TV appearance in, in that. So six movies plus that at this point. What else had they done together? It started back in Brigham Young was the first one they did together, but then they did. Some different ones, Story of Mankind and uh, Ten Commandments, just just various movies, you know. Casanova's Big Night. There were a few. This was the first horror movie they did together, though, it looks like. Is that right? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and then they do, like I said, they do House of Long Shadows a couple years later. So, Do you like House of Long Shadows? Uh, you know, I appreciate the fact that it's got all the horror people in it. Yeah. It's not a, a great movie. I think... It could be a lot better if it didn't have Desi Arnaz Jr. in it. Yeah, I was going to say, I like everything about it except one thing, and it's, yeah, Desi Arnaz Jr. Yeah. does not really hold up <laughs> to Price, Lee, Cushing, and Carradine. No, and not it, at all. But someday I'll talk about it here on the show, because I do still kind of like it. Yeah, oh, you got to like yeah. the fact that they got all those guys together. Well, and they tried to do something similar in the Monster Club, if what I'm reading is right. They tried to get not just three of the big names, but six, didn't they? I think so, yeah. They definitely wanted Christopher Lee, for sure. Mm-hmm. And I kept thinking to myself as I watched this, I watched it, I watched it three times before this. So. <laughs> <laughs> well versed in Monster Club right at the moment. Uh-huh. I kept thinking how much, as much as I love John Carradine, if Peter Cushing had played that role. Oh wow, that would have been great. Yeah, yeah. Either one works great. I mean, it's sure. Yeah. Now, I had read that uh, Christopher Lee was approached about that role at one point. Cushing was approached about being in the film. And Klaus Kinski was also offered a role at one point. And I have no idea what role he would have played. <laughs> I think they wanted him for the vampire in the second story. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Huh. Crazy Kinski. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, you did not see this during its original theatrical run. You couldn't have. Because it never no. was played here in the States in the theaters. At least Mm-mm. not in the beginning. Yeah. Now, I probably tracked it down... Oh, I'd say sometime late 90s, probably, for the first time. Did you know about it beforehand, though? No, I did not. I was looking for anthologies, looking for Price stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, there's a horror anthology with Vincent Price. I got to see that. 
one of the things that I stumbled across is that it did get coverage in Famous Monsters of Filmland, mm-hmm. but it just never got played here until Elvira showed it at some point on TV. Well, they released a, a VHS. Was that what it was? Of, of, okay. of, yeah, of her hosting it. So I think that was like the first U.S. release of it. They put out a comic book before the movie. It's a limited run. John Bolton did the artwork on it. It's got this great oh. cover, which they actually use for the paperback. And I've got that. I just read that this week. <laughs> yeah, uh, you sent me a picture. I was like, look what I got. And like, oh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's really good. And it's very similar to the movie, although it's got five stories in it. But it's got all the wraparounds in the club, just like in the movie. There, there's sort, some differences, obviously. But um, but they use that same artwork on the cover. And it's it's great. I mean, it really is. Great artwork. Oh, the artwork's awesome. I've been playing with it a lot, trying to do my Monster Kid Radio version of the title. And it's been difficult because the font's so unique and distinct, but it's fun to kind of just look at that art and check out all the different monsters. A lot of them in the movie are basically guys in masks. But, you know, it's still cool to see Vincent Price surrounded, or that character surrounded by all these different types of monsters. It's awesome. It is. And the masks are clearly the low point of the movie. I mean, it's just... You know, you know, yeah. I mean, I started to accept them after a while until they did the stripper sequence and the one monster's eyes bug out. It's like, okay, that looks so bad, <laughs> guys. You did not need that. <laughs> but here, here's the thing: this movie has makeup by Roy Ashton in it. Really? Yes, and it also he worked on this movie. Also, a guy named Ernest Gasser who did who did makeup for the Dirty Dozen. Just think for just a second about those club scenes. Now. Replace those masks with makeup from Roy Ashton. Wow. And think about how fantastic this movie would have been. I mean, as much as I love this movie, they would have taken it up even higher. I mean, this movie would be so much better. The guy that did the mask is named Vic Dore. This is the only credit he has on IMDb. I don't think he did anything else. It leads me to think that this was just somebody that Subotsky or one of the producers or somebody knew. It's just a friend who said, hey, I know a guy that makes masks. He'll do it for you. We can get him cheap, which... I'm sure they did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the masks were a little much. But, you know, that stripper sequence, actually, that's that was my first exposure to this film and not realizing it was from this film. I remember distinctly seeing that sequence with different music on something like TV's bloopers from Practical Jokes or something like that back in the 80s on TV or, or, or something <laughs> like that. I just remember seeing that and thinking that was the funniest thing I'd ever seen as a little kid because – yeah, she's a stripper. She strips off her clothes that's, and her skin, and that's funny. You know, I just – I thought it was hilarious. So it, It's pretty. <laughs> it's a pretty clever thing. The animator that did that is a guy named Eric Lodge. And once again, it's like some dude that has no other IMDb credits. Once again, I'm sure it's some friend of somebody they knew and got him to do the, do the artwork. But I actually think it looks good. His art has kind of a, a – Heavy metal, as in the the movie, yeah. animated quality to it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's pretty neat the way they have a, a live dancer who turns her back and then they switch to silhouette and have her do the stripping in, in silhouette. I, I think it's pretty clever. Yeah, I no, pretty- I thought it worked great. I, I thought this works so much better in context now <laughs> as an adult. And my eyes bugged out of my head when she did it. <laughs> <laughs> That, that gag actually gets a laugh from me every time. I think it's pretty funny. It, it is funny, but it's not because it's a great effect. <laughs> <laughs> They're on springs, you know? Yeah, it's it's pretty <laughs> pretty pretty obvious. Yeah. Yeah. But that was a cool little moment. And just to see that in this and realize that at some point this movie had been in my life in some way as a child, 
And then, mm-hmm. well, but, I noticed you what you didn't watch this until this morning. I saw something on Facebook that said you watched this an hour ago. So you wait until the last minute there, weren't you, buddy? Well, I wanted to have it fresh in my head. I've been yeah. watching a lot of movies lately, and you know, still kind of coasting on monster bash fumes so you know i wanted to have it fresh in my head so nothing like getting a song stuck in your head first thing in the morning right (laughs) yeah 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 yeah. actually it's not a bad song it's actually a fun little song and the little musical moments in this strangely work even you know they're not incorporated into the plot say like oh man it is morning for me i'm drawing a blank what are some of the rock and roll horror movies Rock and Roll Nightmare, Black Roses, mm-hmm. Trick or Treat. In those films, the music's kind of, in some cases, worked into the plot, but then there's also performance sequences as well. And in this, it's pretty much all performance bits, but I enjoyed it. I mean, I thought it was a lot of fun. Even the one song that's pretty much performed with just one camera shot zooming in and out on the guy singing, <laughs> I still right? enjoyed it. I felt like I was yeah. actually in the monster club hanging out with Vincent Price and his fellow monsters, and I thought it worked. It didn't take me out of the yeah. movie at all. Very light, very fun, and and that's what this movie's all about. I mean, you, yeah. you can't take it too seriously. Oh obviously. no, no! I mean, you get some of the earlier Amicus films, and some of the stories in those do get a little dark and heavy. This one, it's all very light. Well, the whole thing kicks off pretty light when Vincent Price is begging for food on the street. Yeah. <laughs> well, all of the, you think about it. All of the wraparound stuff in this are super light, but the three stories themselves, one of them is straight up a comedy, but the other two, you could really put those in in a previous Amicus anthology. They're very somber. They're very straightforward, serious, and they would work in a any of the traditional Amicus oh, yeah. anthologies. They also felt like they may have given some inspiration to like the Tales from the Crypt TV show on HBO a few years later, especially the middle bit, the bit with Donald Pleasance. I swear mm-hmm. I felt like I'd seen a, a vampire hunter type story on Tales from the Crypt that felt a little bit like that. Very possible, yeah. Uh, and, and speaking of things that felt like things I saw in this, I also felt like maybe this came afterwards, but The Living Dead in the Manchester Morgue, there are some moments in the third sequence that felt like they were inspired by that film. And I thought that's, that's a neat little connection. And and I like that movie. So to have that kind of carried on here, I really liked that as well. The stories themselves. I mean, they're fun. Typically my favorite, I think the, the, the absolute proper and best way horror anthology is five stories. To me, five stories is the ultimate. It's the way it works best. That's what they did in Tales from the Crypt, Vault of Horror. Yeah. This one has three. I've, they've certainly done that plenty of times, too. And, and it works in this. You get more music. I think with all the music, you didn't have time for another story. I mean, you've got four songs. If you're three minutes each, there's 12 minutes. There's a story right there. Yeah, I was going to say, you couldn't have many more without cutting out some of the musical numbers or the stripper sequence. And I wouldn't want to see those removed from this. I mean, it's all part of the charm. Yeah, exactly. I mean, even when the movie does get kind of dark and somber towards the end, when Vincent Price is talking about how terrible mankind is, it's still kind of light. Oh, it's very tongue in cheek. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, that's that's, that's totally Price. Yeah. Totally Vincent. Yeah. Nobody else could have done it like him. No. So all these stories are based on works of R. Chetwin Hayes, who was an author who was British and Amicus had actually adapted his work before in the film From Beyond the Grave. Oh, okay. Those are all based on R. Chetwin Hayes stories as well. So he and Amicus had a working relationship before this. And there's some ties, tie-ins that come later that we'll talk about also. He's an interesting guy. There's information at the beginning of this book about him. And he, as a kid, actually appeared in some 
some movies as a child actor. It oh. says here, uh, A Yank in Oxford in 1938 and Goodbye, Mr. Chips in 1939. He, he was in both of those as a child. Well, then he, he served in World War II, and he didn't start writing until he was almost 40. But then he would go on to do over 200 short stories and a dozen novels and, and uh, edited a bunch of anthologies. I've never heard of him. Which yeah. <laughs> is he, terrible. He's very British, very much known in, in Britain. They called him Britain's Prince of Chill. Oh, the wow. Prince of Chill. Now, that's a cool name. Yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah, it is. And he won the Stoker Award in what, the late 80s. So I feel like he's somebody that I should know. Yeah. Well, you need to see From Beyond the Grave. That's a pretty good one. And um, that's got our boy Cushing in it. Yeah, so our boy, yeah. We'll talk about that one later down the line somewhere. Cool. We'll make it happen. Does it have a catchy song that you're going to keep singing to me over and over again? <laughs> no. Okay. No. All right. Good, good. <laughs> so I love the way this one starts out. It starts with Carradine actually playing Chetwood Hayes in the movie, mm-hmm. which is not the case in the book. In the book, there's a guy named Donald McLeod. He's just a dude who winds up stumbling into this this other person, this, uh, this vampire. But in this, it's actually the writer himself walking up to a storefront. He's kind of admiring his books on display at this bookstore. Right. So, I like the setup of the writer himself being played within the movie. I, I think it's kind of clever. Yeah, I think it's kind of neat. I like that. And so that's one thing. The script for this one, written by a husband and wife team, Edward Abraham and Valerie Abraham. Once again, never done anything else except they did write the screenplay for Dominique, the other sword and sorcery movie. Okay. Which was also based on a, a, a book. Right. They did those two things, and that's it. Once again, Somebody that Zubatsky knew and, and hired, and that's it. But I think they did a pretty good job adapting this. Without having read the book, I can't speak too much on it, but I felt like the screenplay worked. Mm-hmm. I mean, it does speed along pretty quick, and the writer is pretty quick to accept, oh, this vampire is going to, okay, and yeah, we'll, we'll go follow the vampire. Yeah, but other than that, <laughs> you know, I mean, it works at a nice speedy pace, and maybe we just had to do that to get to the musical numbers as well. But I think so. But it, I mean, because it's like within a minute he gets bit, you know, in the first minute of the film. In the book, Donald, our, our guy, he, he meets the vampire, winds up taking the vampire back to his apartment oh. and then gets bitten. Um, but it's the same kind of thing. He's going to fix food for him. And it talks about how he's the kind of guy who could never, you know, he was very altruistic, very help anybody, give give the shirt off his back to help somebody. Okay. You know, that kind of so he says to the vampire, I'll help you in any way I can, which Price takes that to mean, oh, a donor. Yeah. <laughs> Dinner. <laughs> and he dives right in. Yeah. Now, he is not known for playing vampires. Vincent Price is not a bloodsucker typically in these things. Uh, has he ever played a vampire before on the big screen? Not on the big screen. Two years before this, he did a made-for-TV children's anthology called Once Upon a Midnight Scary, and he played a vampire in that. Okay. And it is basically him introducing different children's tales, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, and a couple of more modern things. Um, He had played a vampire on an episode of F Troop also. Okay, I was going to say, because I know I've seen him in the vampire the, the cliche vampire get up. When was his episode yeah. of the Muppet show? Cause at one point in that he takes fangs and uh, bites Kermit. That's right. That, yeah. that was mid seventies. Also okay. Okay. Did that. And then he also had vampire makeup on, uh, although he wasn't a vampire uh, in the episode of the Snoop sisters, which is a seventies detective show kind of like 
murder she wrote, but it was it was two older women. Okay. It's really a good. He's he's an older horror actor in it, sort of playing a version of himself, and he's at the premiere of one of his own movies at a movie theater. So it's really it's a fun episode. Huh. People can track that down. But he's kind of got some vampire makeup on in it too. Okay. But that's it. That's the only times prior to this. I think he could make a, a pretty good vampire. It's a shame that an older vampire, like a suave kind of, you know, gentleman kind of vampire, just with the voice and everything. It's a shame he didn't get a chance to do that more. Yeah, I think this is kind of perfect though because it's sort of hammy and sort of not, and it's right in that in between line that he toes so well. Oh yeah, you know. So I think it actually this is sort of the perfect vampire version for Price. And his chemistry with Carradine, I really enjoyed. That they're just kind of hanging out at his table, which happens to be in the shape of a coffin, you uh-huh. know, which is a nice <laughs> touch. I like that the waiter's like, "Can I suggest tomato juice so you don't stand out?" It's like, well, <laughs> <laughs> it's great. Yeah, yeah. It, it's a fun. I'd hang out at that monster club if they'd have me. Why not? Yeah, man. Heck yeah. So. Chetwin drops his um, wallet and he sees it and he realizes, hey, you're the famous writer. Oh, I'm I'm privileged, you know, and your blood was the finest I ever had. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, invites him back to the club. He says, I'm going to give you some material. Thank for thank you for the donation. And, 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 and my, I'd like to thank you and, and wave. I want to give you some material for your next book. Come with me. I've got a place where you'll meet all kinds of monsters, more than you can ever imagine. It's a club not far from here and some that you dare not imagine or you've never been able to imagine before something along those lines it's like oh that's nice that's nice yes yeah so he follows him back and, and we get to the monster club which um, is chock full of lots of rubber masks <laughs> <laughs> and i couldn't tell at first in the film if these are just people wearing masks or if we're supposed to believe that they're actually monsters that look like that because there's nothing else monstrous about them. They're just wearing, no, they're supposed to be monsters. Yeah. I mean, I got that eventually, but you know, they're just wearing sweaters and button up shirts and dresses. You know, there's nothing monstrous about them other than they're wearing these masks that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're just hanging out. And I think that's, what's kind of fun about it, you know? Oh, it is. That, yeah. That they're not, in boogeyman mode they're just they're chilled man this is you know this is after hours this is hanging out with your with your peers <laughs> after hours at the monster club <laughs> it is but the bands aren't monsters are they well i guess the stripper i suppose would be yeah she's sort of performing but yeah we open with that and then we get back to the club and the first song is the is the biggest earworm the one that that you keep mentioning the monsters rule okay yeah, 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 yeah. It's <laughs> yeah. done by a band called The Viewers. Now, I, <laughs> I had to really search to find anything on these guys, but I finally found the lead singer. It's not that. It's not the actor, but it's, the lead singer's name is Alan Cummings with an S. He wrote the song that's in the movie, and um, he has a website. He has a band called Little Beach. Okay. And on that website, it says in the 80s, he had a band called Perfect Zebras, and you can find some of their music on YouTube. Okay. That's about all I've been able to find. He said that on there that his kids still think that this is the coolest thing he ever did. And it probably is. <laughs> <laughs> is there a list somewhere online of all the different songs and, and such? I'm looking at their IMDb page for the uh, film, and I'm not seeing a soundtrack listing. Well, there is. It was released on vinyl. Which oh, I'm okay. I have to get a copy of this. So if you do a search for the Monster Club vinyl, you'll find it. Okay, okay. And um, it lists everybody on it. There's your regular songs that the bands do in the in the thing, but there's also the incidental music is on here, and also even John Williams, that John Williams with uh, the Douglas Gamely Orchestra, does music. 
his name turned up in the opening credits and, you know, music by blah, 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 blah. John Williams, blah, 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 blah. Whoa, whoa wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> now, I don't think he composed the music. I think he just performed the music. I'm not sure, though. I, I'd have to double check, but it's like, wow, yeah. that's um, okay then. Yeah, he's I, in there, man. I mean, I know he did Dracula, what, in 79 with the Frank Langella Dracula, but mm-hmm. yeah. Anyway, yeah. so you got the viewers doing Monstrous Rule. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I think we need to listen to a snippet of that. Oh, man. So then we get to our first story, and it's sort of where Price is is, is just saying, hey, I'm going to tell you about Monster. Well, this is also where they have the Monster Genealogy on the wall. I love that genealogy chart. If that hasn't been made available for sale as a poster somewhere, somebody's missing out. I really hope somebody kept the original art from that. Yeah. It's really cool. That's in the book, but it's just sort of a little diagram with, with names. There's no obviously no pictures. Right. But that is part of the book, too. That whole genealogy where if if one monster mates, you know, a vampire and a werewolf were to mate, they would come up with a werevamp and blah, 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 on and on. And vampires sup, werewolves hunt, ghouls tear, shaddies lick, maddies yawn, mocks blow, shad mocks, only whistle. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay. So I'm looking <laughs> at, uh, I don't know if this is from the film or not, but Dirty Tricks Squad, which is a blog, has a graphic of it so i'll make sure there's a link to this in the show notes but yeah it's a family tree and vampire werewolf and ghouls are on there and it tells you how you make vam ghouls and were goos and noom or is that a hume goo hume goo yeah hume goo yep Yep. which is kind of (laughs) cool yeah it really is so milton sabotsky was one of the producers for this Mm -hmm. he had actually worked with roy ward baker previously they did asylum Okay. Vault of Horror and and now the screaming starts together. Right. So they had worked together. Asylum also had both Patrick McGee and Britt Eklund in it. Okay. Who both appear in this movie as well. Right. So it's kind of kind of cool to use some of the regulars, you know. Mm-hmm. Kind of neat. So this first story is about, I guess the the sham is it the sham doc? Sadmock. Sadmock. Shad. Shad. Shadmock. Oh, I have to look at the chart some more. Apparently, <laughs> did I did I did I get that right? I think no. I think we'll, I think you did. I'm looking at the chart right now. Shadmock. Yes. Okay. Yep. Make sure I got it right. I love on the genealogy chart. Actually, if you look at it, the the graphic that I'm looking at when you blow it up, the mock looks like the man who laughs. <laughs> oh yeah. Anyway, yeah, the shadmock, the one who only whistles, but he doesn't yeah. whistle all the time. But when he does, <laughs> watch out. One thing about these movies, about these stories in this, mm-hmm. if you notice, the vampire, the monsters win in every episode. You know, that would make sense, too, uh, considering who the narrator is. You know, I don't exactly. know. You know, you've got this suave vampire, this monster himself telling these stories, and, and the monsters are the, kind of the heroes in these things. Yeah, exactly. Kinda. I mean, I suppose. This, yeah. Then certainly in this one, this poor guy, you know, lives alone in a house, and he gets somebody to come help him. I guess he's um, just referencing all the stuff he has in the house, you know, making right. notes of it and, and wants someone to help with that. And this pretty girl shows up and he falls for her. Well, meanwhile, she and her boyfriend are running a, a scam and they totally intend to just steal his stuff. And 
this, of course, does not end well for her. George and Angela, those are the two that are scamming on him. Is that right? Yeah. I just want to make sure that I got the names right. Because Simon Ward yeah. played George, who is the one yeah, kind of pushing right. Angela, played by Barbara Kellerman, to work her way in. He had even accept his proposal in marriage because that means she'll have access to all the things in his safe and be able to rip him off and rob him blind. Well, <laughs> the monster's not going to put up with that when he no. finds out what happens. And you do see what he's capable of doing when he does whistle and probably the saddest thing in this entire film when he <sighs> kills a cat. Yes. And so there's your Subotsky cat reference. Remember me telling you how oh, that's right. When, back when we did the uncanny, how cats seem to be a recurring thing with him. Yeah. Well, there you go. There's another cat. Just like there's one in an episode of torture garden. Have you seen torture garden? I have. Yeah. That's a good one. Mm-hmm. It's cat and that. And of course the uncanny. Yeah. Are all cat stories. And then he produced cat's eye later which is all cat stories also right so, I mean, the guy kind of had a thing for cats i i think that's just my <laughs> personal yeah you know, was that a good thing or a bad here. thing though because a lot of times sometimes the cats, it was yeah it went both ways sometimes they were heroes sometimes they weren't yeah and yeah. the cat he goes after the cat because the cat attacks the birds that are his only friend and who played yeah. who played the uh shadmock so yeah that's played by a guy named james lawrenson plays the shadmock a lot of these people, I suppose, I would know better if I grew up in the UK or watched a lot more British television or film, really. Because uh, yeah. a handful of people in here that if you watch the trailer, they point out, this is so-and-so and this is so-and-so. And I'm like, who? Which is yeah, unfortunate. Right. But, you know, if that means something to somebody, James Lawrence's in this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> And it's a pretty small story. Each one of these stories is pretty small. I think the story that probably has the most people is the final one uh, with, like I said, the Living Dead with Manchester Morgue vibe. But, I mean, they're all pretty small, compact, even intimate type stories. There are a couple of crowd scenes here and there, but overall, it's just about this girl trying to scam this guy and it doesn't go well for her. Yeah, exactly. And she's very vain. It's all about her looks. This story isn't exactly in the book. In the book... There is a Shadmock story where he does wind up whistling, but he's using it actually against other monsters. Oh, really? But there is a mock story, Mock's Blow, and this is pretty much what happened. A girl jilts him, and she's very vain. He blows on her, and it the it describes the, the breath blowing the skin and melting the skin off her <laughs> face and turning her into just a wreck. Wow. But the screenwriters only really adapted one of these stories straight, and that's the third story. Okay. The second story they completely made up. The first story is sort of a hodgepodge of pieces of different stories from the book. Huh. Okay. I mean, it's a fun little story. And I mean, to create a Shad Mox is something they created. I mean, or, or the novelist created. It's not something from folklore like a vampire or werewolf, I assume. Yeah. So, you know, they created their own monster, gave it its own little tweaks in, in, in things that it can do. And they use it pretty well, and I, I think Angela got what she deserved at the end, and there's a nice little mirroring of when the Shadmock reveals himself to Angela, and she kind of gasps about how hideous he looks, and he really doesn't look that bad, but, oh, he's a monster. And then at the end, when she comes back after having been whistled at. <laughs> and see, that's where I think you get your Roy Ashton makeup. Oh, you know, you're probably that right. That looks awesome. She's all melted and bloody and everything. The only problem with the story is that the, her boyfriend doesn't get any comeuppance. He gets away scot-free. That's true, huh? Yeah. yeah she. So I like to think that 
for the story to continue playing, the Shadmok would come in behind her and whistle at that dude, too. Yeah. An interesting little story. I do like it. And we have another wraparound bit, and we're going to learn a little bit more about the Monster Club, I suppose, because there's a filmmaker here in the Monster Club. Well, no, this is actually where, yeah, but before that, we get to sucker for your love. Well, I was going to say, we can't get to that without the music. And <laughs> that's right. Isn't that the bit? That's the moment, the musical sequence where the camera just kind of sits on the guy, doesn't it? And it goes in and out, in and out, over and over and over again. Right. Exactly. And it's fine. And I mean, it's... He's got blue makeup and blue lipstick on, and, and it's really close up, and I'm just a sucker for your love. <laughs> <laughs> it's a pretty catchy song. Now, this is a guy named B.A. Robertson. Now, listen to this. Looking up him, he worked with Mike and the Mechanics a lot and oh. actually was nominated for a Grammy because he wrote the song, The Living Years, that Mike and the Mechanics did. Oh, wow. So we have a, a, a Grammy nominee in this. Yes. <laughs> so you got John Williams and a Grammy nominee, B.A. Robertson. How uh, about that? <laughs> wow. And it's actually him performing the song, I mean, yeah. which I appreciate and respect that they didn't just have a lot of lip syncing happening in this. I'm sure... Well, I'm sure it was recorded that way on or filmed that way, but it's not like they had one actor come in to lip sync over somebody else's vocals a lot of the times. I like that they had the actual performer here. Is he supposed to be a monster in the film? Are all the bands supposed to be monsters too? They don't exactly say. I would assume, yeah. I mean, he looks like a vampire to me. You know, yeah, he is blue skin vampire. He is discolored. I mean, he's blue skinned. And I guess at the end, when Vincent Price says they're playing our song and they're welcoming people to the Monster Club, you wouldn't say welcome to the club if you weren't part of the club to begin with. But right, and there weren't any Humes previous previously admitted. Oh, so, yeah, that's was, a good point. Yeah, it's a really good point. So we have sucker for your love. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> Man, I'm gonna have this in my head all day. I've got to get the soundtrack. Yeah. Well, actually, my DVD, did you watch this on DVD or do you watch Blu-ray? Uh, blue. Okay, so I've got the DVD. The soundtrack's on the DVD. Oh, okay. That's an extra, so all the songs, including the side B, the incidental stuff, it's all on there. So oh, that's cool. You can find a copy. It's out of print now if you can find it. I'll have to double-check my Blu-ray and see what I have. But yeah, that's kind of cool. This club, not only do they, they have bands perform, but they show movies. Yep. And they do. They have a movie producer who, who gets up. Now, in the book... Mm -hmm. there's two movies they watch back to back. And the first movie they have is by a movie director. And this is kind of cool. It's by a guy named Vink Rocknar. And that is an anagram for Kevin Connor, who was the director of From Beyond the Grave. Okay, that's cool. Yeah, and the movie that they show in, in the book is called From Behind the Tombstone. Which from behind the stoop's home, from beyond the graves, sort yeah, of nice little yeah. tribute there also. So that was kind of a cool Chetwin Hayes to do that sort of a tribute. And then the second movie in the book is the producer Lentum Busatsky gets up, just like in the movie Lentum Busatsky gets up, and that's an anagram for, uh, of course, Milton Subotsky. Right. So he gets up and introduces the the movie from his childhood in this in this movie. And this one stars Britt Eklund uh, as our female lead, who they really try to play up in the trailer, I feel like, as maybe being involved in the movie a lot more than she really is. But it's yeah. also the Donald Pleasance story, which it's cool mm -hmm. to see him. I, I like Donald Pleasance in horror and genre films that aren't the Halloween movies. I mean, he's great in those, too. I like him as Loomis a lot. 
but I like seeing him pop up in other genre films because he's just so good. I feel like he doesn't get credit. I wouldn't say he's like a Price or a Lee or a Cushing, but I feel like Pleasance doesn't get the credit he deserves for a lot of these movies. And to see him turn up in this, awesome. Yeah. Oh, oh I love Donald Pleasance. He never disappoints. He always puts in a good performance. Mm-hmm. I agree. Uh, yeah. And the dad, who is a vampire in this, that's Richard Johnson, who was the doctor in Zombie 2. And, of course, done a bunch of other stuff, too. But um, Oh, my gosh. You're right. Wow. Yeah. You'd think the, the former zombie movie podcaster would notice that. <laughs> 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 no, you're right. That's Dr. Menard. Yeah, he's in Tales from the Crypt. He's done a ton of stuff. But, um, oh, okay. Uh, oh, Tales from the Crypt TV series. Um, yeah. Not the movie. Right, right. But, um, he, he's just done a whole bunch of stuff. Did over 100. He was busy. Mm-hmm. Busy guy. Yeah. Wow. But, uh, but yeah, so uh, this is a cool little story. Uh, this is the one, like I said, that the, the, the screenwriters just made up. And I think really this is the reason that Chetwind Hayes, when he was asked about the movie, he was disappointed. He didn't like it. And I think this story was the reason why, because they, this wasn't one of his stories. He would obviously have preferred had they used one of his stories in here. And uh, there's some in here that would have been, that would have adapted very well, would have been better, I think. But, but I, I, I mean, I like it, but I think that he would have liked better, rather. That's a shame. This is the biggest comedy, comedic piece, straight up, you know, very much just a punchline at the end. And, and it's, a, it's a weird punchline. <laughs> <laughs> it makes no sense. It makes absolutely no sense. Do, do we want to say what it is? You know, we're, sure, we're, we, yeah. spo- we spoil movies on here these days. There's a warning okay. at the beginning. So, spoiler. Spoiler, uh, skip forward like 30 seconds if you don't want to hear it. But <laughs> He's wearing a steak-proof vest. <laughs> what? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Donald Pleasance and his men burst in and stake him in the heart. and, and Yeah. <laughs> steak-proof vest. Oh, wow. With, with ketchup insert. How, how does that work? I don't, I don't, I don't understand know. how that works unless it's like, I, I can't even. No, no. Yeah. Just don't. It just, yeah. Just roll with it, man. Yeah. Okay. It is. And they all it's, laugh. It's like and, the rubber yeah. mask. Just roll with it. Yeah. Yeah. There is one pretty gruesome shot in this that I really like actually. And it's when they're pulling, cause Donald Pleasance gets bit right by the vampire and he, and he immediately turns. That's the thing that I like about this too, is that there's, there's not a lot of wasted time. He gets bit and then he turns into a vampire almost immediately. When they're taking him out on the stretcher, you see that he's been staked because his men turned on him and staked him. And you've got the top of the stake coming out the front of his body. And then the, the back of the, the end of the stake, the pointy end, is like run all the way through him and through the stretcher yeah. as they're walking by. It's like, that's that's something. Yeah. Oh, they, yeah, they staked the hell out of him. Yeah. Stake-proof <laughs> vest. Ain't playing. Oh, yeah. man. But, you know, it's fun. It is fun, and that's that's the whole thing with this movie. It's just made for fun. And supposedly the music in this was based, according to the credits, based on Transylvanian folk melodies. Now, I don't know if that's true, but I would love to know if that really is true and in what folk metal- melodies they were based on, because they're probably in the public domain and I can play them on the show. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I thought that was a nice little touch, you know, to kind of bring that, that flavor in. It's neat. Mm-hmm. It's good. So then we're back to the club, and we're, we're treated to another song. Now, this is the one with the stripper. Mm-hmm. And this is by a band called Night. And Night was fronted by a woman named Stevie Lang. And she's she's a great singer. I mean, she really tears it up in this song. Oh, she's great. And that, that is her, right, on screen? 
Yeah, that's okay. her. She's her former name, and she reverts to after she gets divorced from one of the band members, is Stevie Band. But she, uh, these guys were all British session musicians. Okay. Um, she became a backup singer later who toured with a ton of 80s acts. Uh, Billy Ocean, Shaka Khan, Wham, Tears for Fears, Ray Charles, Nick Kershaw. She toured for two years as a backup singer for Elton John. Oh, wow. She worked with a ton of people. Very talented. Now she's a vocal coach now. That's how she's making her living. She's still around. You can see her on, there's videos on YouTube of her doing vocal training stuff. And huh. Pretty cool. Well, good for her. Yeah. And I'm looking at her website right now. It's tvlang.com. There you go. There you go. So this is the one where you have the stripper who strips further than any stripper you'll ever see in any movie. <laughs> Again, it's a cool little moment. I, I do like that quite a bit. And that image has stuck with me for years. So to know it's in this, to know where I can see it now, where it came from, is kind of cool. Mm-hmm. It is. Then you get, after that, you get your final story, which I think everybody pretty much agrees is the best of the bunch. I, and it's yeah. also, it's the, the most faithful. I mean, it is almost adapted exactly from the book. The, uh, there's a few slight little variances, but for the most part, the story is exactly the same. It, it, and it, it, it's not a film producer. Uh, that's the, the big difference. It's not a director. And the movie starts out, you get a shot of a woman coming down the stairs with a uh, lantern and she goes into, is there a vampire in a coffin? Is that what it is? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. And then he rises up, but they call cut and you see that it's actually a movie within a movie that we're watching. And the director's talking about the scenes for the next location and they haven't found them yet. He's well, screw it. I'm going to go find it myself. I'll do it on my off day tomorrow. So it's this little hot rod and he's tooling around. Now that's the variance from the book because there's no, he's not a film director in the book he's just a guy that makes a wrong turn and once again i kind of like that change i think it's kind of cool i liked the movie within the movie and i like him being a director doing location scouting yeah it's meta and you get to kind of see behind the scenes stuff i've always kind of liked movies that explore the the production of film as a storytelling device yeah so that was kind of neat oh uh, yeah the film producer is that Stuart whitman playing him yes okay long time genre guy mm-hmm Everybody would recognize him. And he does make that turn <laughs> to this creepy little place that he wants to shoot a film at. A small village that he wants to talk to the elders about it or whoever's in charge. And he's told the elders are, are on their way and they'll be there to talk to him about it. And this one is the creepiest to me. And I like that this one became the end story. I, I like the progression. A lot of times with anthology films, I feel like you get kind of uneven mixes of, of which stories goes where sometimes they get kind of goofy at the end or whatever. This one I think progressed really well. The, mm-hmm. the way they kind of played up the, you know, kind of the, the come up of this kind of story at the beginning and then the lighthearted one. And now we're back to a good creepy and, and it is creepy. I keep seeing living dead at Manchester morgue. There's a sequence in that film where they're stuck in the little house inside the cemetery as all the zombies are coming up after them. And there's a moment similar to that in this where they're all in the little house and all the ghouls are coming after them. And I, I really like that moment and I really like this piece. Yeah, I do too. And the, the cross reminds me, you know, he uses a cross to, to get the ghouls to back off. The cross reminds me of um, actually a pre amicus movie. So before Rosenberg and, and Subotsky actually formed amicus, they did, a series of movies. And the last movie they did was the city of the dead horror hotel. Fantastic film with Christopher Lee. 
It is. And that sort of reminds me of, of this with the cross that makes the vampires and that, but the ghouls and this back off. You I, know? I could see that. That makes Yeah. Although, and again, this is one of those things you just have to kind of roll with with this film. He's wielding a cross, and that's what holds him at bay, even though he's in a cemetery and there are a ton of tombstones in the shape of crosses that don't seem to bother them at all. Yeah, they should have, you know, maybe, maybe this cross was blessed or something. It has to be gold instead of made out of stone, who knows. (laughs) Yeah. But I do like it. I'm not, I'm not, you know, it's one of those things you just have to kind of roll with. Yeah, they should have thought that. Patrick McGee has a role in this, in in this bit, which is kind Mm -hmm. of cool. It definitely it's a neat little story. I really liked this one a lot. You know, I don't know if I'm going to go back and watch this movie three times, (laughs) but I would go back and watch this story again because it's, it's good. It's tight. It's suspenseful. It's, it's thrilling. It's kind of scary. There's a nice little twist at the end. I really dig it. It could have fit into any of the anthology films. It would have fit in Tales of the Crypt, Vault of Horror, any of them. From Beyond the Grave, it, it, just pick one. You could put it in there, and it would fit perfect. Exactly. Very well made. After this story, we go back to the club, and this is where Price gives his famous speech. That he recommends that they induct Caradine into the the monster club because after all humans are the most vicious monster of all and he gives this fantastic speech of why and it's pretty much in the book too yeah yeah it's neat you know at first it sounds kind of like you know they're making a commentary on society that sort of thing but you know as price continues to go on and while i'm sure that's in the novel or whatever as price is continuing (laughs) it just gets more and more camp and over the top and overblown and I love it. Oh, I do too. I love it. You know, of course you we've know. got to have a man in our in the werewolf next to him. Well, I second that based on all of that information. Wow. You know, <laughs> the werewolf was kind of hard to understand if you're not really paying attention. Uh, They've exterminated so many members of their own race. And right. Developed weapons and nuclear bombs. And by the time he, he lays it all out, they're all for it. Then, of course, to celebrate, they have to play their song. And so they, you get your last song, which is the Monster Club. Yep. Welcome to the Monster Club. Now, this band, this is the pretty things. These guys are pretty much legendary. Okay. Get this. They were formed in Britain in 1963. The founding member, Dick Taylor, he was a founding member of the Rolling Stones. Wow. Okay. He quit the Rolling Stones after five months to go to art school. But originally, he and Keith Richards and Mick Jagger got together, formed the Stones, and he quit to go to art school. And then once he got there, some of his buddies convinced him to start another band, so he started The Pretty Things. Wow. But they've been doing this since the 60s. And if you look up their early stuff, and it's fantastic. It's this garage rock kind of stuff. It's really good. But they kind of changed their sound through the years. They kind of did the psychedelic phase, which is pretty cool, too. But then they, in the 80s, flipped to this kind of uh, reggae sounding kind of it's like a new wave stuff that they were experimenting with. So, you know, they've kind of, they've kind of changed. But um, these guys, um, actually, this wasn't the first movie that they were involved with. They did music for a movie called The Haunted House of Terror for Tygon Pictures in 1969 that stars Frankie Avalon. I've seen that. I have that. Yeah. I actually really like that movie. Are, are they actually featured in the film itself? I don't think they're featured in that one, but they also appear, and you can look this up because this clip is on YouTube and it's really great. A movie called What's Good for the Goose. They appear, they did music under the, the same band. They did music for various movies under the moniker Electric Banana. Okay. They actually appear in a segment very much like the Monster Club where they're on 
stage, they're playing music, and you get a room full of, in this case, it's teenagers, uh, hippies dancing to their music while they're playing this kind of psychedelic music up on stage. Okay. Very, very close to what the final scene in Monster Club is like. If you watch it, it looks very similar. So they must have felt right at home shooting this scene in the Monster Club because it's a lot like what's good for the goose. Huh. Okay. You should definitely look that up. You'll, I think you'll like it. I will go look that up. Kind of this mod discotheque thing, and they play two songs. Right on. But in the Monster Club, that's where you get Price and Carradine actually getting down. They're boogieing. <laughs> <laughs> I love the looks they keep exchanging, too, while they're dancing with different people. Price looks like he's about to get lucky. I know, right? He shoots a look to Carradine like, uh-huh. I just scored. Yep. Yep. <laughs> so this big lady that comes over and dances with him, her name is Fran Fullenwider. I didn't make that up. Fullenwider. She um, was in a number of movies. She was in Rocky Horror Picture Show, so I'm kind of an extra in the back. You know, a lot of the people in this movie look like they could have at least done a live performance of Rocky Horror at some point in their life. Just kind of the makeup they had or the hat they were wearing. It's interesting. Yeah. But yeah, so that's, that's who he's getting down with. Pretty cool. Well, good for him. And Yeah. And then they do their Welcome to the Monster Club song, and that's where we end. It's a cool little musical monster movie. And, you know, I know I tease Larry about how many times he's sung the song that is in my head, and I know he teases me back. It's actually a fun film with really fun music, with a lot of cred behind a lot of the music, too. I mean, founder of the Rolling Stones. Come on. Yeah. Pretty cool. Yeah. It makes total sense that Zubatsky would do this movie, too, when you think about it, because in the pre-Amicus films that he did, Mm -hmm. two of those were rock and roll pictures. The very first movie that they ever did was called Rock, 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 and it was really super successful. The second one they did was called Jamboree, and both of those were co-written, by the way, by Zubatsky, and he supposedly even wrote some of the songs for the first one. The second one chock full of rock stars, Jerry Lee Lewis, Fats Domino, Slim Whitman, Carl Perkins, Frankie Avalon. Lots more in that one. That's before they ever even formed Amicus. Once they formed Amicus, the next two pictures they did were rock and roll pictures. It's Trad Dad, which once again had Chubby Checker, Gene Vincent, Del Shannon, and Just for Fun, another musical. Huh. So they did a lot of these musicals, and then they did, all, of course, all the portmanteau anthologies that Amicus is best known for. So this is sort of like taking the two genres and just mashing them together. It makes total sense. They were comfortable with it. Yeah. And pulled it off. I mean, they picked music that fit. You know, I think there's a skill, a real skill, when you're not just filling a film with film score, when you're actually trying to bring in some soundtrack music. There's a skill behind picking what you're going to use in the film. And I think they did a really good job here with that. As I mentioned earlier, have the DVD. Mm -hmm. And one of the times I watched it was with the commentary track on. And I've got to say, this was absolutely the single worst commentary track i've ever listened to in my life two guys and i'm gonna call them out luke y thompson and gregory uh weinkoff these guys are critics i bet even they would it would have to admit what a horrible job they did they treated it like it was nothing more than a big mystery science theater oh that's a shame and they're just sitting there just getting off topic talking about a bunch of stuff that makes no sense doesn't have anything to do with the movie and give out very, very limited information. And even what they give out sometimes is incorrect. So absolutely the worst commentary track, hands down, I've ever listened to. That's a shame. The one piece of information they gave out that 
uh, was actually interesting was that the house in the first segment is Nebworth House, which is a big mansion well-known in, in uh, England where a lot of movies have been filmed there, including, as they pointed out, Batman, the first Batman movie. But oh. tons of other movies have been filmed there. And also they do concerts uh, live on the, the grounds there. It's, it's a well-known British place, but Nebworth okay. House, look that up. Well, it's a shame that the commentary is not that great. It, it's hard. I, I feel like commentaries, I mean, that's the reason why I still buy physical media. You know, I want to have the, the special features, the commentary tracks, that sort of thing. I have not explored the commentary tracks, or not, it's not really a commentary track, it's more like an interview uh, on the uh, Blu-ray. But they do have like some old interview bits with Vincent Price and that sort of it's thing. It's the Sinister Image with David Gilbert. Yeah, and who's, it's great. I've seen that. It's, it's fantastic. But there's not a commentary track. Here's the thing that gets me about the DVD. Roy Ward Baker was still around at that time. They could have got him to do this. They could have got anybody that actually knew something about the film or was a fan of the film and appreciated it. Could have got somebody who was a Vincent Price authority, somebody who, who was a, an amicus expert. Anybody but these two dudes who didn't like or appreciate the movie and treated it like it's a big ha-ha, let's make fun of it the whole way through. Could some of that come from the fact that it never really had a proper release over here until the Elvira release, who, not to say anything bad about Elvira, but a lot of people come to the Elvira-hosted movies with that kind of ha-ha, we're going to have fun, as opposed to just really respecting the film? I mean, could some of that be that? I don't know. Possibly. I just think it depends on who puts it together. I mean, come on, people. Let's give us a proper release. I mean, even if you're going to put it on Blu-ray, let's say, forget about the DVD, although a lot you could have gotten plenty of people that were involved in the production of it back then. But let's say that, you, uh, that you're that you just putting it together a Blu-ray. Well, wouldn't you want to find the most qualified people you could to try to actually give you some insightful, thoughtful extras? I would. Sure. And, and I, I guarantee you, if I was going to do a commentary track for a movie... I would do my research and, and want to sound like I knew what I was talking about rather than just be a big jokester for an hour and a half. Well, tell us how you really feel. Larry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, commentary tracks is not something that I've gotten into myself yet. Uh, you know, Rod Barnett from the Natchee cast has been doing them with Troy over there lately. And uh, Troy Howarth we've had on the show and he's been doing commentary tracks for a while. There's a chance that I might be doing something here later this year, but you know, I can't imagine that doing one should just be kind of like a lark, you know? It should be, right. It's not easy. And yeah. it's, it's you've got a lot of time to fill, so you really need to do your homework ahead of time and, and be prepared, you know? And and talk about things that actually enhance the viewer's experience of watching the movie, not just offhand jokes the whole way through. Right. Is it easy to get your hands on the movie now? I think that's something that we should let the listeners know uh, the DVD you said is out of print and I don't know if you can get the Blu-ray anymore. You have to have all region player. I think it's a region two. Well, there was a separate region two release or, or Blu-ray, you know, region B, I guess over in the UK, but Scorpion releasing is a group that put it out here in the States, okay. but I don't know if you can still get it. You can get it over in the UK as well. And the UK has very little special features. I mean, they have like a promo and a few other things. Yeah, it still needs a real proper release. It really does. So mm -hmm, mm -hmm. maybe somebody will pick up the rights and, and do it right and get some real Vincent Price and Amicus experts to talk about it. Well, I mean, David DelVell, he knows what he's talking about. You know, yeah. and he's had experience with a lot of these people. And you, know, you get chatting with him, that's great. But no, I hear what you're saying. Yeah. 
get some some amicus expert who can come on and and tell you all the behind the scenes on all the different uh you know information oh, vincent price expert like like yeah. this doctor that i know <laughs> i don't know i'd come i watch all the movies i don't know i classify myself as an expert <laughs> i don't know man as of this recording it. you posted your most recent fantastic films of vincent price just the other day it was about the movie scavenger hunt yeah which I posted on Facebook after I shared it, saying that was a childhood favorite of mine. Uh, I went back and saw it a couple of years ago after having not seen it in a long time, and I'd forgot the price was in it. So, I mean, you're digging up movies like that. He's barely in it. He's right. I mean, literally, the opening credits don't even finish running before he dies. <laughs> he dies before they even finish running. He <laughs> <laughs> qualifies. He's in there, but yeah. No, I, I like it. And I love what you've been doing, man. And we're going to try to time the release of this episode with the release of your episode covering the Monster Club, which hopefully will either be just either this week, depending on when this episode goes out, or like last week or the upcoming week. We're going to try to time it. Synergy, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah, I actually shot that episode this morning. Oh, so. did you? So you're in the, yeah. so that's why you watched it three times. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm in mode. It's not just for this. I'm also did it for my uh, for my my Vincent Price series. How is the Vincent Price series coming along? Great. I'm in the in the end stretch now, up to the 80s, and you know, wow. of course, his his uh, production tapered off quite a bit as as he moved into the 80s, and he just did a handful of things in the 80s, and that's it. So we're right there, about to wrap this thing up. What are you going to do when it comes to the end? I don't know. I'll find something else to get. I am not going to pick another artist with that many, <laughs> another actor with that many skills <laughs> to follow. This was neat. I wanted to, I'll, I've always wanted to watch every Vincent Price movie. So now I can say I have and took people on the journey along with me. You know, you could probably go back and do all of his TV, like all of his TV. Yeah. So much of it doesn't exist though. That's you know, true. You could talk about it, but so much of it doesn't, you know, it's not, not Recorded for posterity. I mean, you did some of the TV. You did like House of Frankenstein and a few other things here and there. Did you do the Brady Bunch stuff? Yeah. You yeah, did? I mentioned it. Yeah. yeah. Good That's stuff, fine. man. I've, I've enjoyed it. And congratulations on, you know, the success with this. You've been running it from, I don't know, how many, how many years have you been doing it now? I think it's two and a half now, something like that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's pretty phenomenal. It's, that's an accomplishment, especially in YouTube years. <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's definitely been fun. 83 episodes. That's amazing. So congratulations. Yeah. Thanks, sir. Uh, what's new in the rest of the world of Dr. Gangrene? Anything going on? Or, or what's coming up with the short film, The Prisoner of Perdition? Well, it's making the rounds of the film festival. Cameron's mm -hmm. been taking it out. It's actually won some awards and um, just won another one this weekend. And then um, we're going to eventually collect those shorts into an anthology and have Dr. Gangrene host it. But we haven't finished shooting all of them yet, so... Um, that's that's coming up at some point, maybe this fall, and um, have a motorcycle movie that we'll be shooting this fall. Oh, nice! Yeah, so that's the next thing, and then I've been uploading a lot of my older stuff onto YouTube, and I'll continue that. You know, mm -hmm. going back and posting some of my old original '90s stuff that I did, the first things I ever did, uh, which is kind of interesting to go back and look at them because they're so you know rough and cable accessy, which is sort of the charm of it, also. <laughs> Right on. And the previous film that you and Cameron did that I saw on the big screen at the Lovecraft Film Festival, The Beast in the Cave, 
that is getting a proper DVD release by the Lovecraft Film Festival people. By the time this comes out, I don't know if the DVD itself will be available, but it it will be uh, packaged on one of the best of the festival type DVD compilations that they've been doing. So people can see it that way and get their hands on it and add it to their permanent movie collection. Highly recommended. Highly recommended. I think they're taking pre-orders possibly now. Yeah, I'd, I'd have to double check. I need to talk to Brian and Gwen and see what's going on with that because I got I to gotta have it, man. Thank you, sir. Got got to have it. Pretty happy with how that all turned out. The Lovecraft Film Festival was the mo- the one place we really knew we wanted to play, and it was great to get in there and uh, for them to appreciate it. Well, best of luck with everything, man. I mean, you deserve all of your success and more. You're one of the hardest working horror hosts and and just horror personalities that I know personally. And man, just I'm in awe of everything that you've accomplished, and I can't wait to see what comes up next. Well, we appreciate it, and thanks for having me on. As always, love coming on Monster Kid Radio. 300 and what? How many episodes now? Uh, let's see. 326 just went out as of this recording. So, Or is that the one I'm working on now? I don't know. Yeah, man. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, over 300 episodes is what I tell people. It's easier to keep track of. <laughs> yeah. It's a lot. Well, I, pre- I appreciate it. Well, I couldn't do it without people like you having my back and you know sharing the links and talking me up and, and being a guest on the show. So thank you. Awesome. You can find Larry at drgangreen.com. You can also find him on YouTube. Check him out and look up the fantastic films of Vincent Price. He's been covering all the Vincent Price films from the very beginning. It's a really cool series. As far as I'm concerned, that series itself deserves a Rondo Award. I bring that up because Larry won two Rondo Awards this past time around for his column in Scary's Monsters Magazine, as well as being the writer and producer of the short film H.P. Lovecraft's The Beast in the Cave. And there's a video about that on his YouTube channel as well. His most recent video, though, is a tribute to George Romero, who we unfortunately lost uh, as of this recording less than a week ago. And I've got a whole bunch of thoughts about that, and I've talked a little bit about it on Facebook, and I'm going to ask you to stay tuned because I'm working on something, my own tribute. That'll be coming down the line. Anyway, Larry, thanks for being part of the show. And I look forward to having you on the show again in the near future. Explore the eerie library of Vincent Price in Once Upon a Midnight Scary. Oh, I was just lying down here for a little rest. I have such a busy night ahead of me. Journey with him into a world of ghosts, ghouls, and things that go bump in the night. Holy mackerel! <laughs> Hello everyone, I am Rod Barnett. I'm Troy Gwynn. And we are your hosts for Cast, the podcast about the films of Paul Nashie. We, for over five years, have brought you the joys of Spanish cinema, filtered through our brains to you. Yes. Now, what is it that qualifies two Southern boys to talk about films that came out of Spain? And I can't think of a single thing. There's nothing that qualifies. Nothing. nothing. Except that we just love, love them, love them, love them. We love them. Nashi we, Cast yeah. covers the films of Paul Nashi and any other Spanish horror film that we can pretend we know something about. Uh, yes. If you love beautiful women wearing incredibly short miniskirts in subarctic temperatures <laughs> chased by werewolves in leisure suits. If you love 
werewolves, vampires, unidentifiable beasts, or crazy people driving women around and talking like a maniac to <laughs> Yes, flying cats, beheadings with axes. <laughs> Blood that looks Sham- like melted crayons. Shambling zombies, yeah. Some of the films that we've covered in the past are Mark of the Werewolf. How of the Devil. Vengeance of the Zombies. Horror Rises from the Tomb. Tombs of the Blind Dead. Vampire's Night Orgy. Oh, yes. Join us on this journey through the golden age of Spanish horror where Paul Nashi, Leon Klamowski, Jess Franco, Amando Diasorio take us through a filter Espanol. Join us for the Nashi cast. The two most terrific names in Scream Evil. Together in one shock show. Horror of Frankenstein and Scars of Dracula. Your ticket entitles you to be frightened out of your wits at no extra charge. Horror of Frankenstein and Scars of Dracula. In color, rated R. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. I want to thank you for tagging along and listening, downloading the show, retweeting the tweets, and sharing the Facebook posts, announcing new episodes of the show. If you're an iTunes user, please consider hopping over into the iTunes store and giving us an honest review. If you are a Facebook user, please consider liking the Facebook page and joining the Facebook group. That's where the conversations happen with other listeners of Monster Kid Radio between episodes. You can even take part in them while you listen. We have links to all of this over on our website, monsterkidradio.net. It's where you're going to want to go to follow along with everything that we talked about here on the show, as well as the previous 326 or seven, all the shows. It's all there. Links to everything that we talk about in every show is right there in the show notes. We also have a link to our promos. If you are a podcaster and would like to start using the Monster Kid Radio promo in your show, well, feel free to download them there. You can also join our Patreon campaign. You can become a patron of the show and help support the show financially that way. And hey, if you're interested in being a guest on Monster Kid Radio, there's a button for that too. Click on that. You'll be taken to a survey and be off and running. I'm actually starting to make my way through all the people who have applied to be a guest on Monster Kid Radio. I'm pretty sure we're going to get you all in. It's just a matter of scheduling and timing. So what's coming up next week on Monster Kid Radio? Well, I've been trying to space out all the Monster Bash coverage. I, I want to spread it out a little bit because I, I refuse to let Monster Bash go. You know, <laughs> I know it happened last month, really, but I, I don't want to let it go. I'm still enjoying coasting on the Bash fumes, listening to episodes of the B-Movie cast or the Classic Horrors Film Club, which also did a review episode of Monster Bash, and it's really, really cool. So check that out. I'm going to hold off. I'm not going to do Monster Bash next week. And, and there's a reason why. This past weekend, I recorded with Joe Iden from the Fandom Radio Podcast. And I told Joe, it's like, look, man, I've got a ton of recordings in the can. This probably won't go out for a month or so. And he was cool with that. But the same day that we recorded, I got an email back from him to let me know that the movie that we covered is going to be on Sven Gulli on MeTV this upcoming weekend. I'm talking about 1957's The Land Unknown. In 1947, the bird expedition to the South Pole reported a warm water oasis deep inside the icy Antarctic. This is the story of another expedition and of what might be found, what might happen today in that remote, unexplored last frontier on Earth. Unchained since prehistoric times, the land unknown. Could man have survived in the dinosaur age of mighty monsters? 
shudder at history's most ferocious killer, Tyrannosaurus Rex. The battle of the great Stegosauri. Huge carnivorous man-eating plants. The incredible water monster, Elasmosaurus. Never get out of here, Alan. Never, never, never. Stop it, do you hear me? Stop it. This doesn't sound like you. We're not lit yet. Where's the wreck? Talk. You're gonna rot here. Well, since Fenghuli is running it, you know, it was distributed by Universal, which means it's not as difficult to get your hands on as some of these other more obscure science fiction movies from the 50s. So if you have an opportunity, watch it on MeTV, watch it with Sven, or watch it yourself, and I would love to hear your thoughts on The Land Unknown, and specifically your thoughts on Sven Gulli's presentation of The Land Unknown. I very rarely watch it live, but I do DVR every single episode of Sven Gulli, and I'm going to make it a point to watch The Land Unknown, hosted by Sven Gulli, before next week's episode. Episode, and I'll talk about that in addition to running the conversation that I had with Joe about the film itself. That'll be fun. So come back for that next week. And then after that, we'll do some more Monster Bash coverage. I promise. Between now and then, remember that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0, unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Calling Dr. Gang Green. And there's actually two songs with that title. It's on the album Themes from an Imaginary Spook Show. It's by the Gino Royd Experience. The version that you heard at the top of the show, well, that's the instrumental version. The version I'm about to play now? There's lyrics. Check it out, and I hope you dig it. My name is Derek M. Cook. You've been listening to Monster Kid Radio. Ciao. Oh,